Chapter Thirty Four of House, Garden, and Field by L. C. Meal. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The House Cricket. Any naturalist who attends to insects will be sure to make acquaintance with the common house cricket, and may, if he dwells in the right part of the country, become familiar with the field cricket also. Crickets belong to the Orthopterous order and have biting mouth parts, two pairs of wings of unequal texture the forepair, wing covers, being relatively stout and opaque, the hind pair, membranous and folded fan-wise when at rest. They go through no transformation, though they gradually acquire wings, and they have no resting stage. Crickets are leaping insects, as the thickened thigh on the hind leg and the angle which it makes with the following joint show at a glance. They have long antennae and only three joints in the tarsus or foot. It is easy to tell a male from a female cricket, for the female always has a long, saber-shaped egg-laying tube, ovipositor, projecting from the end of the abdomen. It is used to pass the eggs into crevices, and in the house cricket is about half an inch long. No such appendage is possessed by any male insect. The field cricket is larger and much darker than the house cricket. The black head of the field cricket is enough by itself to distinguish it, for in the house cricket the head shows yellow bands on a brown ground. The field cricket burrows in the earth, and there makes a retreat sufficient for its own protection and for the protection of the eggs. Gilbert White's pleasant sketch of the habits of the field cricket, given in the 86th letter of the National History of Selborne, will suffice for an insect which few readers will have met with, since it is restricted to the southern counties of England. The house cricket finds rather than makes its shelter, Chinks where the mortar of the wall has crumbled away, when enlarged a little by gnawing, are its refuge by day. In the evening, when all is still, it comes forth to feed upon the crumbs and vegetable refuse of the kitchen. It seems hardly possible for house crickets to be too warm. They are even less tolerant of cold than cockroaches, and keep as near as possible to the kitchen hearth. Only in the height of summer do they venture out of doors. If surprised by a low temperature, as when the kitchen fire is not lit for several days in winter, they become torpid. Running is the cricket's ordinary mode of locomotion. He has recourse to leaping only in an emergency, and flies only when he wishes to change his quarters. Gilbert White, with his sharp eyes, saw crickets flying out of his windows and over the roofs of the neighboring houses in the dusk of summer evenings. Egg-laying seems to be always going on, for crickets of all ages may be caught in the same traps and at any season of the year. It is believed that the duration of life is about a year, but I do not know of any careful observations on the point. A popular belief, which is shared by many naturalists, would lead us to suppose that crickets and cockroaches cannot live together. The cricket is said to drive out the cockroach. In two houses which I have inhabited, both crickets and cockroaches were plentiful for years together, the cockroaches greatly outnumbering the crickets. I have seen them come out of the same chinks. There are some grounds, therefore, for saying that they are pretty good friends, not that they will not eat one another when the opportunity offers. Most insects with biting jaws will do that, even with members of their own species, but I cannot consider them irreconcilable foes. To anyone who knows the cockroach pretty well, the most interesting features of the cricket will naturally be the points of difference. These are, one, the structures associated with the power of leaping, Two, the peculiar mouth organ, called the tongue, which is much more elaborate in the cricket than in the cockroach. Three, the gizzard, which, though similar in many respects in both insects, shows peculiar features in the cricket. 
four, the organ by which the chirp of the cricket is produced, and five, the auditory organ by which the chirp is perceived. Leaping in a cricket, a grasshopper, or any other insect with thickened thighs is affected in this way. The thigh, leg, and foot are first strongly flexed, as in a man who sits on his heels. Then the powerful extensor muscles, which are lodged in the thighs, contract, the limb is straightened, and the body is raised, not gradually, as when we rise from the sitting position, but with a violent jerk, which throws it into the air. The flexion is extreme, and the moment before the leap the joints lie parallel to one another, as is indicated by the fact that the thigh, femur, is grooved along about two-thirds of its length, so that the next joint, tibia, can be received into it. Lest the foot should slip, and the effect of the upward thrust be lost thereby, the lower end of the tibia is armed with stiff spines which stick into the ground. All leaping insects do not adopt the method of the cricket. The click beetles, lying on their backs, first arch the body, and then suddenly reverse the curve, so the elytra strike the ground with a sharp blow. The springtails leap by straightening a forked tail, which was previously bent forwards beneath the body, and in many cases secured with a catch. The cheese hopper, larva of the cheese fly, grasps the end of its body with a pair of strong hooks borne on the head, and having thus bent itself double, suddenly lets go, and forcibly straightens the body. Hardly any order of insects can be mentioned which does not include some that leap either as larvae or adults. The Mexican jumping bean is well known to owe its amusing movements to the activity of a caterpillar. The caterpillar is that of a small moth, Graptolitha sebastiani. The bean is the fruit of a spurge, Sebastiana. The mouth parts of the cricket are so like those of the cockroach that anybody who knows the one can easily understand the other. There is indeed a striking uniformity of mouth parts throughout the orthoptera, striking because the common plan is by no means a simple one, but an aggregate of many parts, each prone to assume special adaptations. If we take a fresh cockroach and strip off the labium, which forms the floor of the mouth, we shall find on its surface a tongue-like projection, which is very likely used somewhat like the human tongue, to mix up and moisten the particles of food. Beneath this tongue is the large single opening of the salivary duct, which, when followed, can be seen to divide into the two ducts of the salivary glands. The microscope shows that the salivary ducts of the cockroach have a ringed appearance, like the air tubes of an insect. Stiff threads, which branch frequently, are wound about them, and keep them from collapsing, acting indeed just like the spiral threads of an air tube, which they closely resemble. A tongue and a salivary duct are found in the cricket also, but with remarkable modifications. The outlet of the salivary duct now becomes double and capable of protrusion. When protruded, it spreads out fanwise, and each half forms a quadrant upon which the stiffening fibers ramify. When not in use, the whole is retracted. The two expansions, when protruded, form a semicircular plate, convex towards the mouth, and well adapted for spreading the salivary fluid upon the food. Since the house cricket is notoriously thirsty, it may be that its expanded tongue finds a special use in the lapping up of liquids spilt on the hearth. Beyond the capacious, pear-shaped crop of a cockroach comes the gizzard, a blunt cone with muscular walls, applied by its base to the broad end of the crop, and tapering at the other end into a tube with folded walls, which passes a long way into the stomach. It is easy to slit open this gizzard, 
and clearing it with potash solution to study the arrangement of the strong chitinous ridges which project inwards from all sides. The cricket has a similar gizzard, which may be prepared for examination in the same way. Here the ridges are broken up into a great many sharp teeth and seem to be adapted for tearing the food, while in the cockroach one might suppose that they act rather as a press than as an organ of mastication. The crayfish furnishes a third example of an animal in which the mixing and mastication of food is performed by internal teeth far from the mouth. All three agree in this, that their internal teeth are placed in the mouth section of the alimentary canal, which is formed by an inward growth of the epiderm, and in arthropods is lined by the same kind of chitinous skeleton as covers the outside of the body. In the house cricket, both sexes are winged. The forewings, wing covers, almost conceal the folded hind wings, which project behind as two slender tails. Each wing cover is adapted to the shape of the body, being broad and flat where it covers the back, and bent down at the sides as if hinged. When at rest, the right wing cover usually overlaps the left. All this is the same in both sexes, but a closer examination shows that the pattern formed by the veins differs. In the female, the wing cover is covered by a radiating system of veins, not unlike that found in the male cockroach, but in the male cricket, the veins are curiously distorted. There is a large space, nearly clear of veins, which appears to act like a sounding board or resonator. The microscope shows, near the junction of the basal third with the rest of the wing cover, a strong bent vein starting from the inner border, and this is seen to be set with innumerable cross ridges, like a file. When the cricket chirps, he slightly raises the wing covers and rubs them rapidly together. The file of one wing cover plays upon a roughened triangular space just behind the file of the other wing cover and sets up a squeak, like that of a fiddle string touched with the bow. The vibrations produce a trembling movement in both wing covers, and it is probable that the clear space becomes strongly agitated and enforces the sound. Usually the right wing cover plays upon the left, but the action can be reversed. An imitation of the natural sound can be produced by moving the wing covers of a fresh-killed cricket with a pin. In the female, file, roughened surface, and resonator are all wanting. Hence, she is dumb and unable to return the call of her mate. In the large green grasshopper, not really a grasshopper, of the south of England, the sound is produced in much the same way, though the details of the mechanism are changed. But in the common grasshopper, which is a totally different insect, belonging to another family, the outer surface of the wing cover is rubbed against the inner surface of the thigh. A row of minute projections on the thigh plays the part of the file of the cricket, and when rubbed against the sharp edge of a prominent vein, throws the wing cover into active vibration. Many insects of the most diverse kinds are able to produce sounds. The commonest way is to rub a surface roughened by close-set ridges against a projecting edge, and the surfaces, made to play one upon the other, may belong to almost any part of the body. Legs, body segments, palps, proboscis, wing covers, and wings may be employed for this purpose. In particular cases, organs so important as the wings or hind legs are altogether devoted to sound production and rendered useless for ordinary purposes. Sometimes, it is the vibration of the wings which sets up a musical sound, such as constitutes the signal to the mate in many flies. Other insects are able to produce sounds by tapping dry leaves or the wood inner upon which they lurk. No clear case is recorded in which an insect produces a sound by the emission of air from any part of the respiratory system, 
and the mouth is never concerned. Examples of many cases of sound production by insects can be found by consulting the index to Dr. Sharp's Insects, Cambridge Natural History, under the headings of Sound Production, Stridulation, and Phonation. The chirp of the male cricket is no doubt meant to be heard, both by himself and by some other cricket, most probably a female. In a few orthoptera, the female replies to the chirp of the male by a sound which is much less distinctive and prolonged. Signaling backwards and forwards by rasping sounds implies the possession of ears or of some kind of auditory organs. Where are they to be looked for, and what is likely to be their nature? I suppose that most of us would think the head of the cricket the likeliest place to examine, and the examples of the higher animals suggest that the auditory organ may turn out to be a tense membrane with a special nerve passing to it. Such a membrane, in fact, is the drum of the human ear. There is no membrane on the head of the cricket which can possibly be taken to be auditory, but by searching the body through, membranes which conform to our notion of an ear can be found. They appear in a very strange place, namely on the forelegs, near the top of the joint which is called the tibia. Here are two oval membranes of unequal size, the larger being on the outer surface and the smaller on the opposite one. If the tibia of the cricket is mounted whole in Canada balsam, both will be seen together when the part is examined with a lens. A large nerve with a ganglion on it is found within the tibia, and the structure of the part strongly suggests that they are useful in hearing. The organ of hearing occurs in both sexes. The male cricket hears the sound which he produces, and the female hears the call of the male. Many insects which emit sounds have similar membranes, either placed in the tibia of the foreleg, as in crickets, or near the base of the hind leg. In fact, when an insect utters a sound audible by man, its own auditory organ can generally be pointed out. It ought not, I think, to surprise us greatly that there are a good many insects which have the supposed auditory organ without any known means of producing sound. They may utter sounds which are audible and full of meaning to one another, but beyond the range of the human ear. Besides, it may be necessary for them to perceive sounds which they are unable to produce. Nothing has been said of the two jointed tails which stick out from the hinder end of the body in both sexes. Possibly they are feelers which protect the hinder part of the body when the head is busy guarding the mouth of the hole, and other uses have been suggested. I should like to leave the inquirer into insect structures, something to investigate without help, and I can think of nothing better than the ovipositor or egg-laying forceps of the female cricket. It is mechanically interesting on account of its perfect adaptation to the end in view. It is not too minute nor too elaborate for the student who has only low magnifying powers at command, and lastly, this will be a spur to some minds, it has never, so far as I know, been completely and intelligently described. I hope some day to read such an account of it as may deserve to be called complete and intelligent, and to see the kind of illustrative figure that would make its action plain. It is needless to say that the interest would be heightened, to me at least, if the describer should turn out to have been incited by the hint with which I now close my account of the house cricket. End of chapter 34